Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. We are putting the G20 and the COP26 summits in the spotlight because over the weekend, leaders of the world's 20 biggest economies got together to uh, discuss everything from global minimum tax to climate change. And this happened in Rome. Yet even though politicians this uh, promised to stop financing overseas coal plants, there was really no clear timeline for the plan and for reaching net zero emissions. This is, of course, raising a lot of questions whether negotiators from over 200 nations from around the world will struggle to reach consensus on tough and tough environmental issues at the COP26 event in Glasgow, which is happening this week. So let's get more analysis now on what's happening around the world. Professor Andrew Delio is the vice dean of MSC programs at the Department of Strategy and Policy at NUS Business School is joining us on the line uh, this evening. Good evening to you, Professor. Uh, good evening, Tim. Okay, Professor, let's, let's kick things off with the G20 summit. How do you see this? What are your key takeaways? The first thing that one notices, and this alludes to what you were describing at the outset, was that they have very careful language in their agreement. They speak about reaffirming commitments, reaffirming importance, uh, recognizing points that need to be resolved, but rarely do they ever state there are commitments. So where they reaffirm or commit to actions, pardon me. So they reaffirm commitments and the importance of things like SDG, climate change, equity, equality, health, COVID-19, the need to resume travel, all matters of tremendous social interest. But the reality is that it's a patchwork of the most pressing issues Mm -hmm. and it's reactive, but it's not formative to any kind of broad multilateral policy. But hasn't this always been the case, though, in global summits like this? They, They do talk and plan, but nothing, they cannot commit to anything. Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly what the uh, what's the challenge in this in this in this process. And again, you know, to for things to happen, we need things such as hard enforceable tar- targets. But what we what we also uh, need to see are examples set domestically in leading countries from the from the G20. So we're not going to see uniform move towards these actions by all countries. But ideally, we would see some who do begin to move forward. And the reality is, and this is not a surprise to anybody, that simply the agendas are too diverse to allow people to, or to allow the the leaders to converge around a common language to do something collectively. Because even within the G20 group uh, members, they do have different national interests at play as well. Speaking of that, Singapore is not a G20 member, but the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong, was invited to the event. What is, do you think, the significance of Singapore taking part in the G20 summit? Well, this is not the first time for Singapore to take part in a G20 summit. It's been party to other G20 summits or conferences. And this simply recognizes a couple of a couple of factors. Number one, Singapore is important as a country that punches above its weight, given its population, but also it's important as a nexus between Europe and North America and Asia. Mm-hmm. In this sense, Singapore is very, very critical. And having it understand the agendas of all countries in the G- G20 is critical because of this nexus position. And the second thing is that Sing- Singapore has a seat because it provides an opportunity for smaller countries to be represented at the G20 summit. Okay, well, G20 leaders, uh, Professor, approved a global agreement that will see profits of large businesses tax at least 15%. The U.S. president, though, calling this a game changer. So how will this change the global outlook, the global economy for businesses? Joe Biden calls this a game changer because this is a game changer that's very positive for the U.S. Now, the 
the obvious thing is that this is supposed to stop this uh, so-called race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. But there's actually going to be two effects of this of this uh, new uh, so-called global tax at 15%. It should increase the amount of taxes because it'll hopefully raise rates back towards m- closer to where they were, say, a few decades ago when global uh, corporate tax rates were around 40%. But obviously they won't reach there, but they will arise a little bit. And the second thing is it will lead to a new distribution of taxes. And that's where it's been very beneficial for the U.S. It's beneficial for the U.S. on two grounds. Number one, within the agreement, there's the idea that a greater percentage of taxes will be collected at the home bases of many of these very large multinational firms. In other words, where their headquarters are. And of course, the U.S. is, is, is home to many of these. The second thing is that there's less incentive for these multinational companies to locate parts of their operations in countries outside of the developed market sphere, such as outside of the U.S. So presumably, there will be fewer subsidiary operations, productive operations, or maybe even research and development operations set outside of the U.S., and maybe more within the U.S. And, you know, at the end of the day, this, this, would, this would be very helpful to the U.S. because it would augment tax revenues. But what we really want to see with, with this common or harmonization of taxes is companies make decisions on where to locate operations on non-fiscal bases. In other words, they choose where it is most productive for them to locate an operation based upon the advantages that that particular region possesses. That's an idealistic scenario, mm-hmm. but if we do res- re- remove those fiscal incentives, then hopefully companies' productions productive activities will be more rationally located across the regions of the world. Which will be the most practical solution for this, but uh, with this 15% uh, minimum tax agreement that uh, we're talking about, does this mean then that the, 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 the countries who agreed on this will not be able to offer tax incentives anymore to attract certain multinational companies to, to relocate in their countries? Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great question, Tim. And that's where the discussion, discussion is, is most rampant in the U.S. And the, the discussion is saying, look, you know, here in the U.S., Joe Biden, President Biden, you led us into this agreement, but we don't even trust the Europeans to abide by this agreement. So we're, 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 we're signing something. It is a hard and well-defined objective. But at the end of the day, we still have tremendous mistrust, whether it's mistrust in terms of violation or mistrust in terms of coming up with other creative incentives to draw multinationals and their subsidiary operations in. We're not too sure, but the reality is, yes, there will still be some of this playing with these fiscal incentives to draw companies uh, to, to specific jurisdictions. Very interesting. We're speaking to Professor Andrew Delios from the NUS Business School about the latest happenings at the G20 Summit and the COP26 happening in Glasgow this week. Professor, the climate crisis, top of the agenda, of course. Uh, the U.S. president addressing disappointment that Russia and China didn't show up on matters of the environment. How are other countries at play here? Yeah, I mean, you called it a climate crisis. I would, I would call it a climate quagmire because that's really what's, 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 what's the challenge here. For Russia, China, and even India, this is not at the top of their agendas. Mm-hmm. They might give lip service to it at some level, but at the end of the day, the kinds of changes that need to may be made domestically to energy production to abide by any kind of climate agreement is just simply not in their best interest mostly for China and India in terms of their production, but for Russia, of course, for the sale of of fossil fuels. We know that policymaking is still very much a a national level event. And these countries, leaders in these countries are understandably going to look to interest domestically. And they're going to be driven by interests of businesses, consumers, and of course, national leaders. And this will determine what will be done. And it's why China and Russia are not at the table and why India made a very, very soft and long-term commitment. 
mm-hmm. where we will see leadership emerge is among the European countries. This is very, very clear in the present day. The European leaders, whether on the political sphere or in the business sphere, are absolutely committed to correct or address climate crisis. And that's simply because their electorate wants it done. And if they want to stay in power, they have to do this. And they're going to take the lead and hopefully Eventually, other countries will learn from their example and learn from their learnings about how to redefine how energy is created in our societies. And that's what we will all hope, right? But they, they fail to come up with, with a date for phasing out fossil fuel and uh, reaching net zero emissions. Yeah, and this, this, this is not something that will be uh, solved on a multilateral basis. We have to hope for strong leadership amongst a few individual companies who are willing to swallow that bitter and tough pill of, again, redefining how energy is produced, and then hopefully, eventually, others will follow. This, this to me, is, is the best-case scenario. But anything playing out at somewhere like COP26 uh, is just not really going to lead to any kind of substantive a- action, simply because the agendas of each of these countries are far, far, far too different. All right. One last thing, uh, Professor. The COP26 Climate Summit's major deal, 100 world leaders promising to end and reverse deforestation in less than 10 years, 2030. Is this a good, good way forward? This would, be, this, this would be an amazing step to take, to take forward, and it would be wonderful to see this kind of commitment. For us here in Singapore, to, to see a reduction in the deforestation that occurs in Indonesia and Malaysia would be terrific. Mm-hmm. For South America, it would be awesome. For me, who's a Canadian, to see it stop happening in the forests of Canada would be terrific. It's a matter, though, whether the jurisdictions have the ability to monitor the very vast the tracts of land mm-hmm. that, 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 that hold these forests. So yes, it's possible to set these agendas, but whether it's possible to enforce it is going to be the real, the real challenge. But at least it's a good positive step forward. And it is, in fact, 2030, so less than 10 years from now, we will see the outcome very soon. All right, Professor, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us on what's happening at the G20 and the COP26 Summit. Professor Andrew Delios is from the NUS Business School here on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.